So Sam, still confident that he's coming home? I, I'm, I'm still feeling okay about it. I, I must confess, I texted Churn this week saying that we were going to destroy Scotland, and it looks like I couldn't have been further from the truth. Well, join the long litany of us predicting things that turn out to be completely erroneous, isn't it, Sam? Yes, it is indeed. Um, but I'm, I haven't lost hope yet. Well, no matter how disappointing or otherwise fried yesterday was, at least you had a pretty good result over the weekend. So it's all to play for still. Anyway, there's always this podcast to fall back on if anything goes badly wrong. And on that note, it's Saturday, the 19th of June, 2021. And this is Ballot to Talk About. Hello, and welcome to the latest episode of Ballot to Talk About. Joining me, as always, my co-host Sam. How's everything been, Sam? Had a rollercoaster week with the football, isn't it? Yeah, it was. I mean, the week started off really well because we've gone through a bit of a period of a heat wave. But by the end of the week, it had started raining and my mood seemed to track the weather this week, I think. How about you? Well, to be honest, it wouldn't be. I mean, summer in Britain lasts about seven days, isn't it? So I presume that's your summer done then. Yeah, well, we'll see. I mean, it seemed very fitting that England versus Scotland was played under a torrential rain. So that that felt fitting. Speaking of fittings, I noticed that um, this coming Wednesday will mark the fifth anniversary of the EU referendum. Sam, can you believe it's been five years since that fateful day? I can't. That has gone quite quickly. I mean, it didn't feel like that at the time, but five years, wow. And to consider how much much pain, how much ups and downs throughout the entire Brexit process, uh, it just, it feels like such a long time away. What was the point on that night, if you watched the results, and I'm pretty sure you did, that you realised that Leave had won? Yeah, I mean, I did watch the results. And it was what, it was a really nerve-wracking night because obviously with it being a national referendum, there was no exit poll at all. So we were just relying on hearsay that, that people had been saying from what they thought was going on. And I think it was when the results started coming in from the Midlands that I really knew it was lost. But even when they were coming in from the Northeast and it looked like Leave had won by a bigger margin than we were expecting, I was thinking, I don't know if this is going to go particularly well for the Remain side. But yeah, it was a very bizarre night um, and it all seemed to be over very quickly. How about you? For me, my mornings were slightly earlier because if you remember, there was, um, I think it was John Curtis or somebody like that did... uh, cartogram of when you know if you expect a 50 50 result of what what, how the local authorities would vote and obviously i presume you're thinking of Sunderland as the moment in which you realize some it wasn't all going to plan but actually the moment came slightly before that for me when i realized things were not as it seemed when the Newcastle result came in and that was about five points lower than what i had thought um than what was predicted it came in about 50 50 i believe when it was about 55 45 Mm-hmm. And that was, and Sunderland made me realize, uh oh, things are not going according to plan. And for me, it was actually Southampton when that came in, and that was very heavily leave. And that to me was, this is a Southampton is mm-hmm. a completely different part of the world to the Northeast. And yet that voted a lot heavier to leave. And then that's when I realized provincial England's in revolt. And this is actually could be, you know, a leave victory, to be honest. Yeah, and here we are five years later. And did you ever think it was going to be that complicated and all so much heartbreak and blood, sweat and tears? Absolutely not. I mean, I think people studying politics in the next few decades will be looking back on that couple of year period thinking, what on earth happened to the British Constitution? Anyway, we'll be continuing a reflection next in our next podcast, talking a bit more about the next five years. But for this week, we'll be continuing our Euros 2020 theme month by looking at the politics of another country that qualified for Euro 2020, which is Finland. And in the week of their municipal elections, we thought it would be a good chance to to have a look at the state of the main parties there and at some of the recent themes that have been dominating the electoral cycles. But first, I mean, we can't can't start anywhere else other than the stunning by-election result in Cheshire and Amsterdam last Thursday, isn't it, Sam? 
Of course, yeah, which is why that's top of the news items this week. Because Thursday saw the latest UK parliamentary by-election, which took place in Chesham and Amersham, which was triggered following the death of Dame Cheryl Gillan, who'd been the MP of that constituency since 1992. And what was widely expected to be, at first at least, quite a routine Conservative hold, it actually turned out to be an astonishing win, really, by the Liberal Democrat candidate Sarah Green, who, on a swing of over 25%, managed to overturn a 16,000 Conservative majority, and in doing so acquired an 8,000 majority of her own. So it was an enormous change in the fortunes of the Liberal Democrats there. In fact, their majority itself is bigger than the number of total votes they got in 2017, so it's quite a big victory there. The Labour Party finished quite a distant fourth place, only garnering 1.6% of the vote, which is their worst ever by-election performance, and it's largely seen as a result of tactical voting for the Liberal Democrats. And as we've discussed several times on this podcast, it could be seen as an early sign of the weakness for the Conservatives in their traditional strongholds in the south of England, because as we've talked about many times, their focus in recent years has really been pulled to what was formerly known as the Red Wall in the north of England. So it's an interesting snapshot of the state of UK politics to get um, in the south of England, I think. So first question, Cherm, how did the Lib Dems manage to do this? I have to admit I was completely shocked, not by the fact that they did, because there was a lot of reading um, in the week coming up to it that they could pull this off, but more the majority there was, which is over 8,000. How did the Lib Dems put it off? Well, I think there were a couple of things. One is that we've mentioned a few times before, this is an area that has grown increasingly uh, more favourable to the Liberal Democrats, highly university educated. They ran a good local campaign on anti-HS2 and on anti-planning uh, reform, both of which were instituted by this current government. So the Conservatives really had no one else to couldn't deflect the blame onto any other party Mm -hmm. like it could do under the coalition years. And the Lib Dems did it through their... The Lib Dems have always had a better local presence than national presence. And I generally did think as well that because this by-election flew under the radar and there was an assumption from much of the mainstream media that the Conservatives would pull this off a bit by a narrow majority, there was not a lot of media attention on it, certainly compared to the badly and spend by election in two weeks' time. And I think, therefore, that allowed, didn't allow the race to be nationalised and that benefited the Liberal Democrats massively. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's not unusual, really, if you look back in recent British history that Liberal Democrats win by elections because it's something they've been quite famous for doing, at least in the last 20, 30 years. Not since Brecon and Radnisher, when Jane Dodds, the Welsh Liberal Democrat leader, won back in 2019. Um, But when Lib Dems have won by-elections in recent history, has it typically translated into a good general election performance? Or should we treat this win with a pinch of salt in terms of the party's attempted revival? Well, I think... If you certainly compare it to what its heyday was, it's a long way to go for the Liberal Democrats in uh, trying to achieve what it has in the past. So in the last, um, since this government was elected in 2010, and it's been that long since this government was elected, the Liberal Democrats have taken three seats off the Conservatives in by-elections, if you include the Chesham and Amersham result. The other two are Richmond Park in 2016, mm-hmm. and as you mentioned earlier, the Brecon and Radnorshire by-election and both promptly returned to the Tories in the subsequent election that followed. Although I note that, for example, um, Richmond Park went to the went back to the Liberal Democrats in 2019, but there was Zach Goldsmith uh, managed to snatch a seat back in 2017. So it does seem that that record's not too good. I had a look as well when the Conservatives were last in power from 1979 and 1997. I think. I would best say the results are a bit patchy. Certainly, in if you look at the 1992 to 1997 parliament, there were lots of cases like Newbury, for example, and that was an example which Labour, until then, got the lowest number of votes ever, uh, lowest percentage of the vote ever. Um, they, 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 they held the Newbury seat from the 1993 by-election to 2005, 
But if you look at the Eastbourne result in 1990, in fact, all the by-election seats that the Liberal Democrats gained from 1987 to 1992, the Conservatives took it all back. So I think we're looking at quite a mixed picture, to mm -hmm. be honest. It, it is dependent on a multitude of factors in order to, to find out how successful the Liberal Democrats have in bedding in, to be honest. But nonetheless, there have been occasions where they have successfully bedded in that they have been able to hold the seat for a while. Another example is Eastleigh, which the Liberal Democrats took in 1994, only went back to the Tories in 2015. So it, there are instances where they either lose it or they hold it for quite a significant period of time. Mm -hmm. And speaking of the Conservatives, if you were a Conservative member of the government, would you be worried by this result? I think I, yes and no. I think it's, this is what we usually would expect about a traditional by-election swing. A heavy, this is slightly on the upper end, but this is definitely what a typical by-election swing looks like, unlike what we saw in Hartlepool about a month ago. I think, so from that point of view, you might think, okay, you know, that, that we can discount that. However, I think we cannot ignore some of the underlying concerns that motivate the people to vote against this conservative government which is planning reform and, house, and housing in general, but not in the way of wanting more housing, wanting less housing. And mm -hmm. the general focus on the red wall has meant that, you know, and it's all neglect. So I think from that point of view, they would have to be worried about this. But then again, this is a warning shot, I feel, not necessarily the fact the the blue wall is crumbling. I think we're several steps back from how perilous the red labor's red wall is to be honest so for example people like jeremy hunt in southwest surrey guildford uh, um places like that well, are probably quite vulnerable dominic rubb as you mentioned isha and walton but i very much doubt that for example theresa may nearby maidenhead and she's sitting on a massive majority at the moment will fall in the next election i think it'll be a much more slower process but definitely there are, there are signs that the Conservatives are losing support in the South. But the saving grace for the Conservatives in the end is they're not losing support to Labour. They're losing support to Liberal Democrats. And so therefore, we might end up in a situation where the Conservatives remain the largest party, but they just have to form a minority government. And I think that is a saving grace. I mean, and, and as finally on this, we can't end without talking about the main opposition party, the Labour Party. A lot of observers, which actually includes Theresa May's former chief of staff, Gavin Barwell, responded to this result by saying that it could be good news for the Labour Party because if they're going to deny Boris Johnson a majority in the next general election, they could be relying on a strong Liberal Democrat performance in the south of England. Do you buy this theory? Do you think the Labour Party will be happy with this or do you think they should be taking stock after having their worst by-election performance ever? I buy his argument, but isn't the purpose of a major political party like Labour not just to deny the Conservatives majority, but actually get into government? Because all this is mm -hmm. doing is that it's essentially still a non-Labour seat at the end of the day. So I do buy his argument that and in the next election, yes, you want, um, you want to see the Conservative deny a majority and a strong Liberal Democrat performance will help that. And a lot of their 11% fall, their fall on the vote can be explained by due to massive tactical voting in favour of Sarah Green. But to be honest, it also increases the pressure on Labour another way, because in two weeks' time, Labour is going to have to defend a seat in Batley and Spen. And already that's coming on the heels of having lost the Hartlepool by-election. We have seen the Liberal Democrats do very well here. And if they lose the, the Batley and Spen by-election, you can't blame the vaccine bounce or goodwill for towards the conservative government in in its vaccine rollout because you have just we have just seen a strong indicator that the liberal democrats can pull this off so i don't i, I also think that whilst it's good news in the mm -hmm. short term for labor it also is it applies much more pressure on Keir Starmer as well and they're going to have to do the same thing they're going to have to keep it localized which at the moment mm -hmm. There's going to be a lot more eyes on badly and spend for that. So that's going to be a problem for them. They have to run a good ground campaign like the Liberal Democrats do. And they're going to have to try and ensure that tactical voting amongst the other parties ensures that their pool of potential votes is as wide as possible. Because in badly, 
the pool of right-wing voters essentially is one candidate can, which is Ryan Stephenson for the Conservatives can harness it, unlike on the left where it's divided across many parties. And we'll be talking about Batley in a few weeks' time when we have the result. But there's been another election this week, hasn't there, Chern? Definitely. And it was parliamentary elections in Mexico, which were midterm elections, which were a litmus test for the incumbent Mexican president, um, Manuel Lopez Obrador. And it saw him and his allies actually lose their qualified majority, but retain a simple majority in the lower house. His Morena party has lost around 50 seats or so. It was a better night for the main opposition party, which is PAN, which is a conservative-based party. Um, it was expected to increase its total by around 50. And PRI, which has long dominated Mexican politics, also made advance by, by, making around, by gaining around 25 seats. The implication of it, it does weaken his fourth transformation agenda, which he's tried to push, because that required constitutional amendment. And right now, having lost his qualified majority, he will now need the help of an opposition who will be now more boy and less likely to play ball in helping pass the president's agenda. So Sam, this was clearly a bruising night for the government, but is this a good set of results for the opposition? It is clearly a bruising night for the government, given what they were hoping for in this set of elections. But even though the opposition did deny Morena his, the two-thirds majority he was so craving, the, the governing parties do still hold a majority, a quite significant majority. So it's not this kind of glowing endorsement for change. And in fact, the three biggest opposition parties, PAN, PRI and the Democratic Revolution, all lost popular vote share. So they actually performed worse than they performed last time. So that's interesting. However, as you said, the fourth transformation project will suffer and constitutional reforms will likely be denied, which is a good result for the opposition. And in, within state governments, there was a good result for the opposition in Mexico City in particular. But saying that, the citizens' movement was the only opposition party who had a net win in terms of state governments when they took over Nuevo Leon. For a candidate who's being accused of undermining electoral institutions and the judiciary, and for a poor handling of the COVID-19 pandemic, to be honest, this is an excellent set of results for the government. So it's a very difficult one, I think. And we can't talk about Mexico without mentioning the impact of drug-fueled violence in it. And it's a very sad um, a sad occurrence. And unfortunately, this election campaign saw many drug-fueled violence on the streets as well, some quite brutal beheadings mm -hmm. as well on election day. Do you think this had any impact on the election? I mean, just as a statistic here, across this electoral cycle, there were 89 politicians murdered within the campaign, which is astonishing, really. Wow. Yeah, and there was even reports of a severed head being thrown into a polling station on election day, which is just astonishing to think of. Um, and really, I think you can't help but think that the violence did have an impact on the election. Which way? I'm not sure. But in terms of scarring the memory of this election for everyone involved, it, it, clearly it's had a, an impact here. And I mean, it, unfortunately, this is not unusual political killings in Mexico. I mean, there were 125 political murders in 2018 and 61 in the last midterms in 2015. So they keep getting scarred by this extent of the violence. But I think it's, it's very concerning for everyone involved. It really is. And uh, it, it's a problem that has bedeviled Mexican politics and Mexican society for such a long time. Um, finally, Sam, what message does this send about the Mexican electorate when the next presidential election is coming in 2024? And when we note that Lopez Obrador has to step down because Mexico doesn't allow its presidents to serve consecutive terms? Yeah, that's the key here, because I think Going forward into the lead up to the 2024 election, I think Lopez Obrador is going to be trying to secure his legacy and put through some policies that he's been determined to put through throughout his entire tenure. Most recently, hoping to curtail renewable energy transition. And I think the last three years of his of his presidency is going to be an attempt to, to do that. Um, 
And all eyes will also be on who is going to take over from Lopez Obrador. I mean, there seems to be two front runners at the moment. Um, Foreign Affairs Minister Marcelo Ebrard and the Mexico City Mayor Claudia Scheinbaum. Um, but there's three years to go, so we'll have to see whether a candidate emerges who's going to either explicitly carry on the legacy of Lopez Obrador or try and move away from it slightly. But for the opposition, I think they can take some heart from these results because if you include the citizens' movement, which is has historically you're not really sure whether to align it with the opposition or with the governing parties, but let's take it because they're not endorsing Lopez, Lopez Obrador at the moment. Let's take it to be an opposition party. The opposition vote share was higher than Morena and its allies this time. So I think there is hope there that if the opposition can unite around some sort of shared vision for the election, that they can actually perform quite well when it comes to 2024. However, the prospect of a rebounding economy and sustainable approval ratings of Lopez Obrador, despite all of this, makes it hard, I think, for the opposition to gain traction in the next three years. But I think there has been a glimmer of hope for the opposition parties wanting to dislodge the AMLO environment when it comes to 2024, especially given that he won't be at the top of the ticket. Interesting. And we will be, of course, following developments in Mexico, Mexican politics, um, over the next couple of years, it certainly will be very interesting to see what kind of shenanigans the opposition decides to do in its attempt to win back power. But I think that is a good moment to take a little break and we'll be right back in just one moment. Okay, welcome back to Ballot to Talk About. As we said at the top of the show, this week we'll be talking about the politics and parties of Finland as we continue our Euros 2020-themed month. And it's a good week to talk about Finland, because last Sunday they held their municipal elections across the various cities and regions of Finland, so it's a good moment to take stock of the performance of relative parties. And for that reason, I think in a moment it's, it's right to just get straight into it. But first, I thought an interesting place to start with Finland, Churn, is that... Finnish prime ministers seem to serve a relatively short amount of time in office. In fact, the longest continuously serving prime minister, Paavo Lipponen, served just over eight years as prime minister, which across Europe for being the longest continually serving prime minister is relatively short. So why do you think this is? In fact, this is an amazing statistic that, um, about Paavo Lipponen, which kind of tells you its own story, to be honest. If you look at um, Finnish history, which is um, since uh, 1917, the Office of Prime Minister is about, he is the only party leader to bring his party, the Social Democrats, into power and then win re-election for his party, which is stunning considering how long he's been there. All other Finnish prime ministers have failed to serve, have failed to win a second re-election for his party, wow. which I think is astonishing. So why has it failed to do so? I think it's a multitude of factors. I think, as we're about to discuss, that, you know, with a multitude of proportional representation, we're using proportional representation, it creates a multitude of parties. And not only that, the parties are much more willing to work with each other across the ideological divide rather than stick within your left-wing camp or your right-wing camp. So that just makes a multitude of coalition options much more feasible. Mm -hmm. And not only that, it does mean that sometimes, for example, if you don't finish first, you can form a government um, and you can become prime minister. So I think that just makes the entire system much more complicated as well. And it doesn't help that a lot of the parties, the big three parties, as we're going to talk about, are all, have all historically pulled quite close to each other. Mm -hmm. So small changes in its share creates a new party which is first, and therefore a party which is more legitimacy in forming government. How about you, Sam? Do you have any ideas why? Yeah, I mean, I completely agree. I, I also found out that actually prior to 1980, it was the president who had control over cabinet and appointing the prime minister and actually had the power to dismiss them at any point. So actually the stability of the prime minister's office was actually beyond the office to control themselves. So 
interestingly, the longest serving prime minister in terms of the number of years they served was Kalevi Sorsa, who was prime minister three times over a period of 15 years, with only one year of that being served by someone of a different party. So actually they were replaced by someone within their own party within that 15 years. So I think that says all you need to know about just how fluctuating the office of prime minister was. I noticed that prior to 1980, a lot of prime ministers actually served for less than a year. So it was in between electoral cycles at the whim of the president. So I think in history, that's played a role as well. Although that being said, one of his recently shortest serving prime ministers, Anneli Jatamati, has served 69 days <laughs> in between winning the election in April 2003 and her resigning in June 2003. So not all the time, but yes, I do take your point there. Yeah, well... Now that we've talked about the Prime Ministers, I think it's worth getting straight into the parties, probably starting with the governing parties who currently have Prime Minister Sana Marin, who is a member of the Social Democratic Party. So as we talk about the governing parties, we're going to talk about the Social Democrats, the Centre Party, and then the other parties, which include the Green League, the Left Alliance and Swedish People's Party. So... There's a fair bit to discuss here. So Sana Marin, as I said, is the youngest serving female state leader. And she is a member of the oldest active party in Finland, which currently is the largest party in Parliament with 40 seats. She is Finland's ninth prime minister and took over the office in December 2019 after the resignation of Antti Rinner over losing confidence of the coalition. 2015 marked the Social Democratic Party's worst ever electoral performance at just 34 seats and actually in fourth place. And although they rebounded to first place in 2019, they still performed far lower than their pre-2000 levels of support. And last week's municipal elections didn't bring great news for the party because they lost around 250 seats across the municipalities and were among all but one of the coalition partners who lost seats across these municipal elections. So a big question on the Social Democrats' churn is, why have the fortunes of the party fallen so much in recent years from a period of recent dominance for the party? So I think I would classify it as twofold. So if you just go back a little bit of history, the Social Democrats have done traditionally did very well until the 1945 election when they were usually polling around 60 to 80 seats out of a 200 seat parliament to 50 seats. And that's when I think it started this first drop. And that was largely in the split of a left, the left wing vote um, between the Social Democrats and the Finnish People's Democratic League or more colloquially known as the Communists. So I think there was a first initial split in 1945 um, over that. And it took a lot of the left and the Communists took a lot of the left wing votes. Then, as you mentioned earlier, you had the split in the 2000s. And I think the why it's kind of more of a more precipice drop is that in 1995, they actually held its best election since 1945 and has been downhill ever since. So despite a small revival in 2003 and 2019. So in 1995, what happened was that there was a previous centre-right government comprising of all centre-right parties and it undertook a very unpopular austerity programme and there was also the lingering effects of the early 1990s recession. So that fueled the Social Democrats' better performance in 1995. And when you're at high watermark, the only way is down, I suppose. That problem was compounded by what happened in government mm -hmm. uh, when they were in government in the 2000s. So what I found was that there was quite a bit of anger, particularly in 2007, after being in government from 2003 to 2007, over this idea that even though they were in government, that they failed to deliver for their base. So then SDP chairman, Eero Hegoloma, and I probably mispronounced that, um, is a, he himself is a former leader of a trade union called SAK. But he actually prevented a rise in student benefits. He actually blocked a rise in student benefits. So I think this is a similar tale compared to many other social democratic parties we discussed over the last couple of weeks, where if you, they try to take a much more moderate economic position, but actually in the long term, 
it has hurt the party's brand among its core supporters, and that has harmed the party in the end. Mm. This week, with the municipal elections, it was Sana Marin's first electoral test as prime minister and leader of the Social Democrats. And even though she continues to enjoy quite high approval ratings personally, why do you think her party has struggled in this election? I think that's a very good question. I think I also note that this was a similar problem afflicting um, Finland's second female prime minister, Mary Cavallini, who ruled from 2010 to 2011, where she was significantly more popular than her centre party, but still did really, really badly in the election. So I think what has happened is that this, to me, suggests that in the parliamentary election level, it's more people judging the performance of the party and the government in general, rather than the personality leading it. And I noted that there were some, um, they were passing judgment on the government's planned health and social care reforms. And also this idea of taxation was also a big issue as well. And it was symptomatic of the fact that it was a more of a bad mark against the government, given the fact that the Centre Party, the Left Alliance and the Greens all lost seats in this election rather than mm-hmm. just Social Democrats. So I think it was more an assessment of the government itself. And Sana Marin being the head of the government, I don't think there's any position mm. to help improve on that position, to be honest. And I think as well, as I noted turnout was at a relatively low by Finnish standards at 55%. And we know, for example, that, ter- that even though Sana Marin has this appeal amongst younger voters for being you know, comparatively closer to them in age, we know that, for example, that younger people tend not to vote in lower turnout elections compared to older voters. So therefore, I think the Social Democrats are also hurt in that aspect as well. And speaking of that, another of the big three parties, the Centre Party, which don't let the name mislead you, um, actually mostly sits on a centre-right platform. They have contributed 12 prime ministers, the most of any of the active political parties in Finland. And as I said, it's a liberal agrarian party that traditionally represents rural interests, promoting decentralisation from Helsinki. The 2019 election was the party's worst result since 1917, with just 31 seats, which was a loss of 18 seats from the 2015 election, which they won. And just prior to the 2019 election, centre leader Ewa Sipila resigned as prime minister, which at the time was seen by some as a move to allow them to freely campaign against their coalition partners, but it didn't seem to work, did it? Um, So the Centre Party, their base, is it still based in rural communities as per what they've traditionally represented? And if it is, is this a sustainable coalition of voters with the rise of the far right? Uh, yes, I still think it's based it's within very much Finland's rural community, particularly in the north of the country. They are still relatively strong there. And yes, I think it's also the case in which that it is potentially at risk because of the rise of the far right, um, which we're going to discuss later in the podcast. Why? I think that it's because that if you're a party that builds itself on decentralization, representing rural communities and an agrarian party, it therefore makes it very difficult when you want to implement austerity, and which they have done over 2015, 2019, and 1991, and 1995. And it's noteworthy that two of their worst performance in terms of seat loss was in the 1995 election and the 2019 election, both periods in which they implemented austerity. And I think why that's difficult is that if you think about it, it's always much more hard to deliver services to much more rural communities. It's much less efficient because of the fact that you have to deliver the same quality of service over a fewer amount of people spread over a much wider area. So it's less cost efficient. So I suspect that very often it is the Mm -hmm. first thing that will get cut when government is trying trying to save money in the budget is that these rural communities will suffer. And therefore, having a path, this party has been in power for so long, it would therefore suffer a backlash, which has finally found a home in the rise of the far right parties, that in particular the Finn part, the Finns party. So I think that that is the mm-hmm. problem that they are facing. To be honest, they brand themselves as the sort of cent- center option within Finland. 
Although, as we said, they, a lot of their ideological stances actually seem more centre-right. So does it actively engage with both sides, as we typically see from centrist parties in Europe, or does it have a natural ally? I think it has, from my reading of it, and um, it has worked with both sides, both the Social Democrats and the National Coalition Party, which is, I think, and I think, although we say it's centre-right, if I were put it on the left-right spectrum, I would still put the National Coalition Party to the right of it. So I think there's a slightly even more centre-right option, to be honest. Yeah. Although, like you said, I think you're right, it does lean centre-right. I, I do think that, and, and therefore, because of the fact that it sits in between, it allows a both-way size, which it has successfully employed. And I think that is how it's managed to remain in power for, and supply 12 prime ministers as such. But nonetheless, I think if you gave it a choice and deep in its heart, it will probably want to go with, its, with the National Coalition Party or COC or KOK in what is known in Finnish. So deep in its heart, yes, it will probably side the National Coalition Party, but the party has proven pragmatic in also seeking out the left as well. Because in the two occasions where they haven't, there have been quite vast adverse electoral blowbacks. Well, I think it's also important to say that this is not the centre party are not some kind of third party who are the junior coalition partner in every circumstance. They they actually have won many an election in Finland and have formed the government themselves. So that's an also an important thing to just asterisk there. Um, but back to their policies, as you mentioned, Europe has been an interesting policy for the centre party. Because back in the early 1990s, when Finland was looking to join the European Union, the Prime Minister at the time, who was a centre party Prime Minister, Esko Aho, faced deep divides in his party over joining the EU. And their party actually later opposed joining the Euro, uh, even though they then accepted it when they regained government in 2003. So they've had a complicated relationship with Europe and the Euro. Is the EU a dividing line in Finnish politics? And where does the Centre Party stand on this issue today? Yes, I do think that the EU, and not, but not the EU itself, but issues afflicting the EU has occasionally posed problems for the Finnish government. So you talk about the euro, the bailout crisis, and what to do about the euro's bailout crisis in the early 2010s was another hot topic and dividing line in Finnish politics as well. So I think that the different issues faced the EU will have impacted Finnish politics as well, largely because I suspect that if you, the location of Finland as among the Scandinavian countries, the one that's most close to Russia, it kind of sits at that frontier when Russia begins and Europe starts. Mm -hmm. So I think that, that the battlegrounds over Europe have always proven a hot topic there. And I, I, I think that that is very much the case there as mm -hmm. well. And if you think about a base, if you look back to what we earlier mentioned, the Brexit referendum, if you talk about rural communities, it is striking that in the UK, the most areas that have expressed the most skepticism as small towns, you know, and in rural areas, exactly where the centre party traditional base mm. lie as well. So I think that although they have, they, that, that's why that they, they tried to, reach out in the 1990s to oppose the, the euro as well. But then again, 2003, they accepted it, you know, and they were quite pro bailing out some of these Southern European countries. And that's when the problem started for them, really, in this latest mm. over the last 10 years, I feel. Mm. And so the other parties involved in the current government, as I said, are the Green League, the Left Alliance and the smaller Swedish People's Party. Just to quickly talk about them. The Green League posted its best ever result in 2019 by quite a margin, with 20 seats overall, but this week's municipal elections was not good. They lost 2% of their overall votes and up to 5% in some of their best regions in Helsinki, Espoo and Tampere, which are some of the biggest urban centres in Finland. The Left Alliance is a much smaller Democratic Socialist Party that has featured in five Finnish cabinets since they were founded in 1990. But their moderate increase of four seats this time, I think, actually helped the sustainability of this left-leaning coalition. 
And back in 2011, the party split over the decision to join the National Coalition-led Katenin government, but this time seemed more content entering the, entering the government with the SDP. And then the Swedish People's Party, which seems unusually named for a party in Finland, actually represents the Swedish-speaking minority interests in Finland and has worked with governments of all colours to promote this interest. And in fact, they were continually in government between 1917, between 1979 and 2015, which just shows all the different parties they're prepared to work with. And it's not an insignificant minority either, because in 1994, Elizabeth Rehn, who was the Swedish People's Party's candidate for president, got to the second round of the presidential election and garnered 46% of the vote overall. So they're not an insignificant minority here. So questions for these smaller parties. Is the poor green result in this year's municipal elections a response to them being in government? Or do you think there's something wider going on with the Green Party's fortunes? Yes, I think that being in government has not helped the Greens there. And I'll give you why. Um, we posted on our Twitter um, a couple of months ago in April that the government, Finnish government at that point was on a verge on possible collapse. And the main, one of the reasons that it was, um, uh, that there was a lot of tensions between government is over PEAT, P-E-A-T. And which is uh, basically, it's basically a source of income and energy for many pe rural people in Finland, um, which is obviously therefore something that is very keen to, and something the center party cares about. However, it is also extremely polluting. In fact, it is more polluting than coal, which I find very interesting. So therefore you have the, the Greens as a, environmental party versus the center party's core constituency. And the reality is, is that the government will collapse, the center party pulls out, but the government could potentially survive, given the only falls about two seats short, if the Green League pulls out. So the fact remains that the center party has more leverage. And I do think that because of the compromises on that, I suspect that annoy a lot of young, a lot of the environmentally focused voters in Finland with the Green League. And as I mentioned a little bit earlier, they also weren't helped by the fact that young people in a low turnout election, young people tend not to vote and young people also tend to vote for Green. So I think that both these factors mm -hmm. impacted the Green's performance. And where does this Green Party sit in terms of European Green parties ideologically? Is it openly left-leaning or is it a bit more nuanced? I think it's much more nuanced in recent years. I noted in 2011 it was the first time it entered government with Yertu Katanen, the National Coalition Party leader as Prime Minister and up to that point its involvement in government was primarily when SD, the Social Democrat MPs were Prime Minister, that's when they brought the Greens along. And I think that would embolden the Greens to continue on this much more Send to also talk to the center right mm -hmm. as well because I note in the 2015 election they actually increased their number of votes and seats as well. The green the green league actually increased the number of votes and seats that they did that they had. So they therefore didn't suffer what a lot of the blowback from teaming out with a center right government in this way, which I thought was really interesting. Yeah, that is interesting. And talking about the green league and left alliance briefly, with 20 and 16 seats respectively. They're not an insignificant grouping in this coalition within the parliament of 200. What has caused this left-wing fragmentation of the vote in Finland? And is this extent of it in 2019 unusual or is this quite common? Well, what I think happened in 2019 is that, as we talked about before, the centre party did really badly because it suspected that a lot of, when it implemented austerity, and therefore that was attractive to left-wing votes. I think in the past, what would have happened is that, and suddenly we saw in the 1990s that all that vote would have gone straight to the Social Democrats. But now it's not only gone to the Social Democrats, but a significant chunk went to the Greens, who were also probably boosted by the increasing um, importance a lot of voters placed on climate change and the left alliance as well. So it therefore meant that the, the, the direction in which we went was not one way, it was multitude of ways as mm -hmm. well. And I think that that explained why the parliament became significantly more fragmented after the 2019 election. 
because of the fact that where its votes, where the center party's votes went, was that it sprayed across a multitude of parties rather than it going for one. Hmm. And finally, on these smaller parties, can you think of any other country which has a political party with the name of another country in it? It is absolutely bizarre. And to be honest, I have been quite unsuccessful in finding any of them. Um, however, I do think there are parties that represent minority interests. So there are parties, and particularly in proportional representation systems, there are parties that represent minority interests um, in parliament, but whether they explicitly use the, the name of another country is a totally different matter altogether. Have you been successful in finding any, Sam? No, I haven't. I was just curious as to whether you managed to dig any out when I put that question on there, but it does seem unusual. Indeed. It, it does seem in, unusual indeed. And it's always one of those things, a bit like Lithuanian Union of Greens and Farmers. It's such a unique combination of parties together, isn't it, Sam? <laughs> it certainly is. But I think that's a good opportunity to talk about the opposition. And the other big three, the only of the big three Finnish parties that are no longer, that is no longer in this government is the National Coalition Party. Um, the, which is, I would say, is the main centre-right party in, in Finland. At the last election in 2019, the party got 17% of the vote, which is, although it gained a seat, it was actually its worst performance in terms of share of the vote since 1966. Nevertheless, though, this share of the vote is only slightly below what the National Coalition Party has historically polled over the last 40 years, which is around the low 18-19% uh, to early 20-or-so percent suggesting a relatively high base, but low ceiling. Since the 1980s, they have supplied three prime ministers in two terms, Harry Halkuri from 1987 to 1991, and more recently in 2011 to 2015 with Yeti Kratinen, as we alluded to throughout this podcast, and Alexander Stubb. But only once throughout this period, it has, was the largest party, which is in 2011. So Sam, First of all, why is this Finnish centre-right party relatively weak compared to its neighbouring countries? Is it because of the presence of the centre party? I think the centre party plays a big role here because there's sort of a breadth of centre-right politics available. I mean, traditionally, we would expect the sort of agrarian interest that the centre party represents in other European countries to be represented by the traditional centre-right party, which in this case is the National Coalition. But the fact that those two ideals are split away from each other into two separate parties, I think really means that the, the traditional ideological base that we would expect for a centre-right party is split between two parties. Therefore, the National Coalition's ceiling is much lower than we would expect for other centre-right parties around Europe. So I think it's the unique nature of Finland's party system being dominated by three parties rather than two, in which there are two conservative groups available. And also unusually here, as I said, the National Coalition is an urban-centred party. So as the urban centres move towards the more left-wing ideals in terms of social liberalism and social economics, you're sort of squeezing the National Coalition's traditional voter base in many ways because this because they typically reside in urban centres and as urban centres move left and agrarian interests move right towards either the Centre Party or in many cases the Finns Party as well, the National Coalition's traditional voter base sort of vanishes slowly. Do you agree with that? I think it's very interesting and I do think that it's elements of truth to either statement. Although I do note that, you know, what is interesting is that if you are a centre-right voter, it seems that if you live in a rural area, you've gone straight to the Finns party, the far-right party, rather than, mm -hmm. is, which is a further ideological leap on the economic scale necessarily, than the, the, than the National Coalition Party, which is much closer ideologically. So mm -hmm. maybe it, to me, it po could possibly suggest that a drift away from the centre party is not necessarily motivated by economics as such, but more other issues which we're going to talk about a little bit later as mm -hmm. well. But Sam, you pick, you said something really interesting there, which is said that it's the and the National Coalition Party in the last municipal election last Sunday held the la capital city of Helsinki. Yeah. Why have 
the National Coalition Party traditionally done well in urban areas. I mean, in the 1970s, there was a big shift in the National Coalition Party's policy platform, which has continued ever since then, which has been towards supporting social liberal ideals and an expanded welfare state, which for a centre-right party in Europe does seem initially quite unusual, but it's the sort of thing that appeals to urban centre voters, especially on the social liberalism front. So in an environment where there's a lot of post-materialist issues being discussed about the welfare state, about um, civil liberties, the the National Coalition is, for example, in support of gay marriage, then you can remain competitive in this kind of um, policy arena, which I think has meant that in one of their key strongholds of Helsinki in terms of municipalities, they've they've remained competitive. I think that's very interesting. And I think what also helps their case on the social issue, liberal side is that the, the centre party itself is not particularly social liberal. In fact, they're socially conservative. No. In fact, I know, I think yeah. when the Finnish, uh, Finland approved gay marriage, 30 out of the 36 centre party MPs at the time voted against it. So I think that your main centre-right party you're competing with is, you know, socially conservative. The social liberal legs could run a lot further, as you said, in liberal areas as well. So I, yeah. I think there's definitely merit to that. Let's talk about the Finns party because it's dominated discussion of both the centre party's woes to many respects. It is a far-right party which was formed in 1995, rising from the ashes of um, the populist Finnish rural party, which is a populist anti-establishment party itself. Their long-term chairman who led the party from 1997 to 2017 was Timo Solini, who oversaw massive growth in their party support, particularly in the 2011 election, going from 4% to 19%, which puts it actually in the top tier of the big three parties we talk about, and from five seats to 39 seats um, over, um, from 2007 to 2011. He subsequently entered government in 2015, with Sohini become a foreign minister, However, this period in government was marked by declining support for the party, which eventually led to the party splitting in 2017, with Sohini and, and 19 other MPs forming the Blue Reform Party. So first, Sam, what went right for this party in the 2011 election? I mean, they were really benefited by the 2008 financial crisis. That was what they really capitalised on. And in particular, they were very resistant to the European Union's efforts to support Southern Europe, namely Greece, in reviving their economy after the financial crisis, which is quite a similar story to other far-right parties, in particular the Alternative for Deutschland in Germany. And also, more generally, the income gap growth in Finland since the mid-1990s has been faster than any other OECD country. So I think as well as immigration clearly being a, a key point for this far-right party, as is many other far-right parties, I think the economy, the combination of the financial crisis alongside just generally poor-performing economic indicators for lower-income people has been a big motivator for the Finns party. Interesting. We can't really talk about the recent history of the Finns party without talking about its split in 2017, which was quite a major split mm -hmm. because it saw, as I had mentioned earlier, its longtime leaders leaving the party altogether. And it was initiated after the centre party indicated it was unwilling to work with a man who defeated Sohini in that leadership election, which is the current leader, Dr. Jussi Hala Aho. Why? Well, the new leader is much more right-wing and hardline on immigration than Sahini. Um, and I think that's, that's why the Centre Party refused to work with him. But we say that the Finns party split. It's no longer split because the Blue Reform Group got completely wiped out in the elections and no longer exists. So the Finns party, I think, managed to pull off something quite spectacular, which was managing to make itself the anti-establishment far-right option to its former self, if that makes sense. And I think that's because we, we've talked in the last few weeks a lot about far-right parties and a common theme has been that when that far-right party has gone into government, a new group 
has emerged to be the further right anti-establishment group. Well, in this case, I think the Finns party managed to be that to itself because of the split. So I, I just think that's fascinating. Indeed. And so therefore, can we say the Finns will never, ever go into government? I think they will be very reluctant to go into government. But I'm, I think it's less of a case of them refusing to go into the government and more of a case of other parties refusing to work with them. Because it's highly likely, if you look at opinion polls in Finland, that the Finns party will win the next general election. But the chance of them forming a government, uh, I would say, are, are pretty much zero because other parties would, would rather work across the entire ideological spectrum than work with the Finns party. So I think it's going to be difficult for them. But that's assuming they even want to do that, which who knows? I, I just think they might be scarred from their period yeah. in government, really. Um, and finally, we're going to talk about this other relatively small centre-right party, which is the Christian Democrats. And it was actually formed out of the Christian faction, out of the National Coalition Party. And, and this, this faction came out of the, and the National Coalition Party in 1958. The party is consistently polled around 4 to 5%, apart from the 80s and early 90s, when it was around 3%. And it seems like me- during that period, many of its supporters joined other centre-right parties, such as, and in particular, the National Coalition Party. So why did the party lose those followers in the 1980s and early 1990s? I mean, I think herein lies the problem in Finland is that the centre-right of Finnish politics is a very crowded environment. So when when there are not just one alternative party available to you, but two, it's very difficult to compete with that because, as we've talked about, the National Coalition Party and Centre Party offer very distinct views on centre-right politics, one of which is social, liberal and urban centres, one of which tends to be more conservative on social issues and is rural-centred. So you you have that huge choice available to you. So I think the the Christian Democrats have just suffered from what is your USP on the centre-right? Do you agree with that? I think so too. And I think more broadly, it is drowned out, to be honest. And I don't think... Yeah. And by the, the, the other two big parties who take up most of the bandwidth. And more broadly, I don't think that it's, it, it, fits, it has a big enough base more than anything yeah. else and has been unable to expand beyond that, which I think is um, part of the problem, really. I think one of its key, one of its key uh, motivators when it was originally formed was around um, social issues. And especially nowadays when you have not only the Centre Party and National Coalition, but you also have the Finns Party as well. If you're that conservative on social issues, then you you sort of just, you've lost your market entirely if it was ever there in the first place. I think you're, you're absolutely right in that respect. So they've failed to benefit from that. One of the things that I've noticed is that, and we're going to finish off with one final thing about National Coalition Party, is that the Christian Democrats only been in government twice, which is 1981 to mm-hmm. 1985, when as part of that wider anti-centre-right uh, government, and 2011 to 2015. Why has it not been that successful in getting into government? I think it's been the, the case that it's just not really been needed mathematically, because in many cases when the centre-right have performed well enough to form a centre-right government. They've performed well enough to not need the Christian Democrats. And then when they've fallen slightly short of that, they've turned to a much larger block of centre-left parties than turning to within their own centre-right block and needing the Christian Democrats. So I think that's been quite an interesting um, case within Finland where you've either had quite a secure centre-right bloc, which involves the Centre Party and the National Coalition, or you've had quite a large grand coalition set-up of centre-right and centre-left in which the Christian Democrats, on their small number of seats, just weren't mathematically required. And finally, um, just quickly go back to the National Coalition Party, because they they have become much more involved in government, as we said, in recent years. So... You know, they've been out of government, they were, they've only been out of government twice, 
mm-hmm. since 1991, from 2003 to 2017, uh, 2003 to 2007, and this current period is 2019. Is there any, is there any link between them getting more involved in government, pushing the Christian Democrats out, in a way? Quite possibly, but I mean, the National Coalition Party are a much bigger party who represent a lot more seats. So it's often the case when these three big parties perform quite similar to each other that you're going to have to involve at least one of them, if not two of them, which is just not the case for the Christian Democrats. I think the National Coalition Party have just become more essential in government formation, and that's that's why. And I also think part of the reason why you alluded slightly to earlier is that it's so, more socially liberal policies yeah. and acceptance of the welfare state has made it much more acceptable to the centre-left parties yeah. and to, 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 to reach across the ideological aisle as such and talk to the National Coalition Party. It's been a fascinating discussion about Finnish politics, but one of the things that has been remarked upon is the fact that the main parties, so the National Coalition Party, the centre party, and the SDP, are much more willing to work with each other than in other countries, i.e. like Denmark's red and blue bloc um, earlier, and we're going to talk about Norway in a couple of months' time, and even to accommodate parties at the opposite end of the ideological spectrum. The 2011 election has been referenced a few times. It's a remarkable election which saw yeah. the National Coalition Party year to Catalan admit the left alliance, which is literally at the other end of the ideological spectrum into government. Is there anything about Finnish politics that could explain why this ideological flexibility? I mean, my main theory is that this has a lot to do with fragmentation and government maths when it comes to forming a government. Because I think, as we've talked about a lot, the three main parties perform quite close to each other in terms of the number of seats they get, even when there's fluctuating fortunes of their relative parties, which means that you you usually would need to involve at least two of them in the government. And I think it's been the case here that, for example, in 2011, the gap was bridged between the the National Coalition Party and Left Alliance by the presence of the Social Democratic Party, who, when they were negotiating to form a government, demanded that the Left Alliance were welcomed into the fray. And that's why the Left Alliance took part in the 2011 government. Because even then, the Social Democratic Party and National Coalition Party, the two best performers in the election combined still fell short of a majority. So I think it's the case that within these governments, in order to get security, you need to involve a lot of parties. And because of the extent of the fragmentation, you have to involve a lot of parties who don't necessarily agree with each other. And I think that's a unique nature of Finland. Do you have any alternative perspectives? I think the 2011 election was much more interesting government coalition because the centre party took itself out of the equation altogether. It had been in government since 2003 and suffered a worse result and wanted to rebuild from opposition. So therefore, I think if you, the centre party has probably, if you ask the National Coalition Party, who would you rather work for? The answer, they would say centre party yeah. in a heartbeat. And then taking themselves out of the equation meant that the to Catalan had to look to the left. And that's why that coalition mm-hmm. came about. I think it's even more remarkable given the number of parties involved and this ideology it actually survived the entire yeah. term of government, isn't it, Sam? It it is, yeah. It was it was quite remarkable. I think it's quite easy for us, especially for UK observers, to find this really unusual. But we need to remind ourselves persistently as we talk about these European countries this month that working in broad ideological coalitions is not unusual for a lot of European countries, especially ones which operate on proportional representation. So but still, it, Finland has, in particular, with it being a three-party system mainly, has been particularly fascinating. This has been a fascinating discussion about Finnish parliamentary elections, but we can't ignore the fact that Finland is also one of those countries that holds presidential elections, in which party-nominated candidates, um, particularly if they're running to replace a term-limited president, are run for their respective parties. Although we do note that the president then becomes independent, and if he does seek re- he or she does seek re-election, tends to run for independent, but with some party support um, backing it. Do parties' performance in the presidential election tell us anything about the litmus test of politics in Finland at that moment, or is it primarily a personality-driven contest? Um, that's a good question. I mean, I think given that. 
the powers of the president have been severely limited uh, in recent years uh, in, in to the point where now they exclusively operate really in a foreign policy realm. I think it does give us a nice indication of where the country is on foreign policy in particular. I mean, 20, the 2012 election, which was when the incumbent president, Ninisto, was first elected, was predominantly based on the issue of whether Finland should join NATO. And that was the ideological discussion in that presidential election. So I think it's much narrower ideologically, but I think there is still at the heart of it, an ideological debate going on about foreign policy. Although how can you read that in terms of foreign policy space though? Well, shouldn't it be therefore, given the Finns party's mm -hmm. greater dislike of the EU, more be a contest of globalists versus nativists in that sense, rather than center left, mm -hmm. center right? Well, quite possibly. And I think it'll be interesting to watch out for the next presidential election in 2024, which really will be the first test since the Finns party has become an, a major force in Finland on the national stage persistently performing in the top collection of parties as to whether they progress to the second round for the first time. Indeed, and we'll be keeping on breast on both the presidential elections. We note the parliamentary elections will take place in 2023. And Finland, unfortunately, despite producing three female prime ministers, they've not had been very successful at the ballot box, isn't it? And on, suddenly, keeping their job for a very long time. Mm -hmm. In fact, Sana Marin is already the longest serving of them all, which I find quite fascinating. So we'll definitely see um, what happens there. And we note that the coalition in itself, the current government is unique in the sense that, and this is a final good note to end, that all of its party leaders, all five of its party leaders are female and 12 members out of the 18 member cabinet, which is two thirds are female itself, which is a completely unique thing in Europe and the world, isn't it, Sam? Yeah, and it's a great thing to see. Indeed. But that is it now for the latest episode of Ballot to Talk About. Join us again next week when we'll be continuing our Euro 2020 theme by talking about the politics of Austria. And as always, we will continue to bring you up to date on the world of politics and elections from around the world. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at, at ballot underscore talk and leave us a rating or review or simply tell your friends about us. My name is Chen Han, and until next time, we will speak to you soon. <laughs>